0: Hello, and welcome to the Janes OSINT podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Janes Intelligence Unit, and we are the team within Janes that provides responses to tasking direct from our customers. So we do bespoke research on a consulting basis on any kind of security and defense topics. We also deliver open source intelligence training, which we've been doing now for around 10 years, and we do a range of courses around the world. If you want to find out more about our training, do come to janes.com slash OSINT training. I'm
1: also here with my colleague, Mark Wilson from the James Intelligence Unit. So just a little bit about my background. I've really um, focused on issues such as online extremism, both from a Islamist extremist point of view and also tracking the extreme right as well, which is a uh, growing concern, not only here in the UK, but in other countries throughout the West. But I'd also just like to say a little bit in terms of what specific projects I focus on within the Jane's Intelligence Unit. And one of those is Jane's Primers, which are essentially e-learning courses on a range of national security and defense topics. If you want to learn more information, you can contact us by visiting janes.com forward slash primers.
0: Great stuff. Thanks, Mark. I think it's a really interesting development for us. It's been very exciting creating those primers. You know, We've been delivering OSINT training, as I said, for a long time. And we're going to talk today about current challenges and opportunities, it's specifically around some of the issues we've had with open source information starting to disappear in some instances. And we're going to address the question of, is the golden age of OSINT ending? We're also going to talk about the effects for OSINT practitioners as a result of some of these changes and just picking up on some of the themes that we've been talking about a lot in our intelligence briefings, and you may have heard us talking about at seminars, etc., in other venues, thinking about what can be done more broadly with open source intelligence than organizations are currently doing. So what are the opportunities that are out there to really make more of open source intelligence? But to kick this one off, as I said, we'll talk a bit about how open source intelligence has developed recently. And I think one of the big issues that's been discussed and has been worked on by OSINT practitioners in the last month or so has been this issue of social media platforms in particular starting to close off access to some of their information. So we've seen Facebook, for example, taking privacy concerns much more seriously than perhaps it has done before. And to that end, they've closed off access to some of the third party tools that have been out there for a while. People in the OSINT community have been using for several years. to specifically find people of interest to carry out investigations using information and content from Facebook. So tools such as the graph search tools uh, developed and put online by people like Michael Bazell at Intel Techniques, Hank Van es, uh, his graph tips tool, all of those have started to lose access to some of the content they had before, and they've had some different responses. So we've seen Michael Bazell put his tools behind a firewall to help him comply with some of Facebook's conditions. Henk Van Ness, on the other hand, has uh, adapted his tool to fit with those new conditions Facebook's applied, and we've seen other tools pop up to try and cope with this new change in the information environment. So uh, a user on GitHub, for example, Sodust, uh, Mattia, who's created a search book as a tool, a plugin for Firefox, which helps you search Facebook in the new environment where information is now being somewhat restricted. However, already in the last month or so, since that tool's really come into being used, We've seen Facebook responding by limiting access, again, to that type of tool. So we're entering a little bit of a cat and mouse game between people who are building these kinds of tools to help us access information and the social media platforms like Facebook who want to sort of, again, get away from some of the negative stories that that have been spread around some of the activity that's occurred on their platform, which they've not really been able or willing, perhaps, to police in the past to try and close off access to some of that information, allow people to ha- exist in more closed groups and communities, which were always there, but I think they're now sort of encouraging uh, people more towards, uh, in response to some of the privacy concerns that have been raised this year. So this is a definitely an interesting development for us. Um, it's one that perhaps doesn't affect us so much yet in some of the work that we're doing. But for those occasions when we are asked to do more investigative research or investigative work, which we have done in the past quite often with social media, it would, it would have an impact. This would be part of our information landscape assessment. We would have to look at, right, what is now possible or feasible with Facebook data? Uh, what's realistic? What can we do? And we've already had clients contacting us and asking us, okay, we need refresh training on how to access social media, how to get the best out of that information, because the conditions have changed. And Mark, I don't know if this is something that's affected your area of work, particularly some of the research you've been doing on Right-wing extremist groups or other extremists, but it'd be great to get your take on this.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to pick up on that, I mean, I think another challenge of Facebook becoming more privacy-focused and more security-focused is um, the difficulties, really, in setting up a profile in order to, to conduct monitoring activities on Facebook. It was a time, um, you know, maybe a few months or years ago when you could set up that profile on Facebook and you could essentially leave it dormant. You didn't need to add any friends or, or like any content. And could you do it with just an email in the old days? Exactly. Or you, I mean, these days increasingly, it. It's got to be a, a phone number attached. Exactly. Right? Exactly yeah. right. And um, nowadays, because of these increased security concerns, when you're setting up a Facebook account, you really, you know, you need to make sure you get a profile picture on there you need to make sure you uh, fill out some biographical data maybe like some content add some friends in order to tell facebook that you are a real person so um that is a challenge from a from the you know a monitors point of view from somebody who wants to conduct monitoring on the platform you've got to be aware of that initially otherwise your account will, will get shut down and that's just another pressure on you know individuals that want to conduct monitoring on, on this platform.
0: Really interesting. Yeah, and I think that's one of those shifts that we're seeing that I think is going to be an evolving trend. I don't think they're going to row back from that yeah. and make it easier for us to create profiles, et cetera. So exactly. I think it's something that for open source intelligence practitioners, the teams that are involved in that kind of work, that they're going to have to get on top of. Or what we may find is for some organizations – some of the access to information on social media platforms starts to drift away from being open source intelligence towards being online human intelligence, which is really a different specialism. It's a different set of skills you need in order to run realistic personas, etc., on social media. So it's not something that can just be done, I think, by people in the course of their activities and they can spend a few minutes on here and there. I mean, would you say, Mark, that's really almost a full-time occupation in some ways in terms of keeping those kind of personas alive once you've got them
1: set up? Yeah, it's it's totally um, time-intensive. And, you know, that's something that our, our customers come to us with quite often is, The fact that, you know, how do we not only build profiles, so for example, shells of profiles online, but then how to build out those profiles into what we'd call a persona, Mm -hmm. um, something that has a lot more detail to it, something that develops a character, for example. And yes, um, that is is time intensive. and, And, you know, that's something that we're helping our customers understand through, you know, one of the courses that we run on, you know, online engagement Um, and we run that course for you know for online operators that are interested in this area.
0: I should add as well I mean a big part of those courses is looking at the legal and ethical aspects of doing this. I mean in terms of creating false profiles etc on Facebook other social media platforms we are technically breaching their terms and conditions. I think though it's an accepted part of work that's done in terms of research and investigations on those platforms certainly within the UK police put out guidance to officers on how to conduct this type of activity. So it's a a legitimate way of conducting research. I think though there are really a lot of uh, ethical considerations around this. We saw examples such as Cambridge Analytica, where they hoovered up way more information than they should have done. And I think that's something that everyone who's involved in this area needs to be very, very conscious of is not taking more information than you need and not keeping it longer than you need. You know, we've had GDPR come in uh, not so long ago, which also impacts on data collection and retention. And I would emphasize to anybody who's involved in this area, make sure you're compliant with the relevant legislation. But more so, think about the ethical aspects as well. And think about what happens with that data that you're collecting, the information you're gathering, where you store it, making sure that you don't lose it, et cetera. Um, And don't keep it longer than you need to. That would be, I think, a quick tip and, and key advice that we would give out on that type of training. What I, th- what I think this does, though, is looking at the shifts we've seen, um, I think it has an impact on the way that organizations actually conduct open source intelligence and the value that can be gained from open source intelligence. You know, years ago, uh, some people listening may remember uh, the 2001 uh, Open Source Intelligence Handbook published by NATO, where there was a diagram that depicted osint as being the foundations of the other intelligence disciplines things like signals intelligence human intelligence etc i think increasingly we're finding that with open source intelligence it it can't be relegated to just being uh, a collection discipline which is really what it was at that time and has been since then and people just think of it as a means to gather information and you know open source information it's then processed collated in some way structured perhaps turned into open source intelligence, but it's not really turned into a final product. It goes into other areas of information and intelligence that are then converted into a final product, but it's not in and of itself really used to its fullest extent. I think there are a lot more elements of analysis that can be conducted with open source information. I think there's a lot more value that can be gained from it. People can create assessments. People can write reports using open source information. And I think what we might see in the future is a growing acceptance that for open source intelligence teams and units, what they really need are analysts, or they need analyst skills. They need to be able to take that information and turn it into some useful product. Otherwise, it may become an increasingly shrinking collection discipline, especially as we see other types of information being steadily closed off. I mean, even where social media is accessible and websites, etc., we may find that individuals are becoming more circumspect about what they post. You know, we've seen the Russian military, for example, handing out stricter guidelines to their personnel about what they can and can't post. Um, I don't know if, Mark, in the extremist area that's affected any of your research efforts, whether groups that you may be looking at are giving out more security advice to their members and telling them, actually, you need to stay off these platforms
1: or say less. Um, Definitely. I mean, that's something that I'll go into more detail on in the on the section uh, coming up. But. Um there's definitely a shift to, I mean, not just uh, individuals from the extreme right, but also Islamist extremists as well, are savvy operators. You know, I mean, with with Islamist extremists, that's been the case for some time. Uh, I think the extreme right has a little bit of catching up to do. But that's definitely the, the general direction of travel online. And, and we see individuals becoming a lot more aware of their personal security and their online footprint. And
0: I think it's not just from the perspective of trying to evade people investigating them, but I think it's also from the point of view of staying on platforms. I mean, we've seen Twitter. Yes. Twitter's closed down a lot of accounts recently. Um, there's Again, that's probably affected the people who were monitoring those accounts more than the people that were using them uh, in some ways. But it's, again, another area of open source information where we're starting to see it become less useful in collection terms. So when we're talking to organizations now about what comes next in open source intelligence, I think where we see the opportunities, it's really around doing more with the kind of information that's already available. Again, applying those analysis skills, trying to produce useful product from open source information, but also trying to involve other disciplines within an open source intelligence team. So bringing in specialists who perhaps are imagery specialists, you know, because they're one of the areas that will grow will be commercial satellite imagery or the availability of other types of imagery. So having full-time imagery analysts within an OSINT team could be really beneficial for defense and security organizations, where before I think those were seen as distinct disciplines and, you know, it was hard to cross those organizational boundaries sometimes and, you know, the OSINT team becomes siloed from other areas. It's really important now for OSINT teams to really start drafting in those specialist skills, whether it's imagery, whether it's maybe language skills. I think one area that we are sort of seeing some growth is around the quantity of non-English language material that's online, and that's going to continue. So there's more and more platforms that are specifically set up in particular languages or to cater for particular language communities. Again, that's an area of potential growth for OSINT teams. So despite all these challenges, there are some opportunities. There's things that they can do. Hopefully that leaves people with a few thoughts to take away and think about in terms of the way they practice open source intelligence. But I wanted to maybe go into some more detail uh, from you, Mark, on uh, now on
1: looking at extremism particularly
0: and some of the yeah, research sure. you've done. Yeah. Maybe give us a flavor of how you've gone about doing it.
1: So we've been taking forward some sustained research um, to help our customers understand the threat posed by the extreme right. And key to understanding that threat, we've kind of separated this research into four areas. So first off is understanding the narratives of the extreme right. Second is understanding some of the social media platforms they might be operating on and understanding also how they are using social media to actually fund their activities as well. And then finally, uh, looking into um, how, again, they're using social media to link across some borders. And just to pick up on a couple of those uh, those final points there is social media platforms like Gab are really important now in terms of helping these individuals and organizations connect across borders. And so for people who might not have heard of Gab before, sure. can you maybe just describe a little bit about what it is? Yeah. So um, Gab is a social media platform. It's been described in mainstream media as uh, the far right's answer to Twitter. And actually, if you use Gab, if you spend any time on Gab, you'll quickly realize that it is actually very similar to Twitter. Whereas on Twitter, you may have a tweet, for example, which is you know a maximum character length. It's very small. Um, on Gab, you would have a Gab. That's what they call on that platform. And again, it's very, very um, small amount of characters that you can that you can use in that. Um, I guess the differences between the two platforms is, and I'll go into this a little bit, is that on Gab, you can also join groups, whereas on Twitter, it's you're really just following individuals or organizations or other accounts. But So Gab has that added dimension to it. It's a bit more, you know, you, you can kind of connect with a lot more people on, on specific issues, really. So that's the kind of the, the long and short of Gab. But for example, Gab's group function, if we're talking about right wing extremists, has basically seen a group. I'll just choose one example a group called the Anglosphere. And that is basically a forum where white supremacists from the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, South Africa, they can connect and discuss white supremacist type issues on that group. I mean, we've seen a similar group that's been focused on Europe, and that pushes a narrative of. Europe heading uh, for an inevitable race war, for example. So you can see how these groups on these platforms are really connecting people, not only across borders, but helping connect people to the same narratives as well. And then if you just go on, I mean, another area of interest is is looking at online funding and specifically answering the question, how are right-wing extremists using the web to fund their activities, basically? So... When we use the term extreme right, the extreme right is quite a broad church, right? We've already mentioned white supremacists, you've got neo-Nazis in the mix, you've got uh, counter-Islamists in the mix, um, as well as identitarians. Well, the news is, is that actually each one of these segments of the extreme right are all looking to fund their activities through requesting cryptocurrency donations. Interesting. Um, and mm-hmm. some have actually gone even further. I mean, some use uh, special features of specific mm-hmm. social media platforms. For example, one um, called Minds, which again, in mainstream media, have referred to kind of the far right's answer to, answer to Facebook. Using platforms like that, that have special features built in that allow users to crowdfund their activities. So we've seen extreme right users and groups try to... Make, make use of this option within within Minds. And then others have gone even more creative. Uh, they've uh, they've even gone to the lengths of using specific web browsers like Brave to fund their activities. And, and actually that is done, basically Brave has a feature whereby donations can be given to websites that are visited by a user. So the idea is that for, you know, right-wing extremists will encourage their followers to visit their own site using the Brave browser. And then that allows the use of the Brave browser to actually transfer some cryptocurrency to, to their actual website.
0: So just just on that one, so the yeah. Brave browser, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's a more privacy-oriented browser, exactly. is it? Which is set up by a commercial company with perfectly good intent. Yes, uh, but you're saying it's in some ways being misused almost by some of these groups to help them
1: fundraise definitely definitely so within the browser it has a kind of a cryptocurrency coin that is kind of built into it and you can visit a specific website any website you want and if you like that website and um, then you can um, donate some of your cryptocurrency tokens using the brave browser so that's quite an interesting idea if you're talking broadly Talking quite narrowly in, in, the, in the frame of online extremism, online extremists are actually using this to generate funds. So clearly, we're getting very creative when it comes to fund generation.
0: That's really interesting as well, because I know three or four years ago, we were asked by a client to do a research project looking at terrorism financing, specifically trying to address the question around, are terrorist groups starting to use digital currencies to move money, raise money? You know, Is it part of their finance system in any way? All the research at the time that was done by others done by ourselves we found that actually they weren't mm-hmm. at that point using digital currencies um, whether it be cryptocurrencies or other forms of digital currency because it was actually slightly more complex than just moving money normally or raising money normally but you're saying now actually that's that's a shift you're seeing actually they want. Definitely. Uh, are they, and are they drawn to those kinds of currencies because of the secrecy aspect, or
1: is it just because it's been made easier than it perhaps was before? Uh, well, my thoughts on that are it's the, it's the former. It is that they are attracted to the fact that their perception, at least, is that they um, there is you know more security around that. They can conceal those transactions uh, a lot more than they were using using more mainstream monetary systems. So. That is one to watch. And of course, you know, on that as well, I mean, we wait um, with bated breath on, you know, what uh, the Facebook cryptocurrency Libra is going to look like as well. I know there's been talk for quite some time about the Telegram messaging app launching its own cryptocurrency. Uh, as some of our listeners may well know, Telegram is a key platform for message extremists and increasingly the far right, which you can go into a little, in a little while so we wait really with bated breath to see you know, how extremists are going to take these tools on inside these platforms. I mean, potentially it's quite, quite a concern going forward, but uh, one that we'll just have to wait and see what happens with. So what are some of the challenges for you in terms of tracking right-wing extremist groups and users? Okay, so the first challenge is understanding new platforms. Um, so we've been talking about Facebook, we've been talking about Twitter, but conducting monitoring in this space is actually less and less about conducting monitoring on mainstream platforms, like your Twitters and your Facebooks of this world. Um, Mentioned Gab already, but basically what we're seeing is an alternative social media realm or world has really been developed, and that is really occupied by extreme right users, individuals, and organizations. So, for example, recently through our research, we've discovered an extreme right presence on social media networks like MeWe, parlay blabpad have you ever heard of any of those i have not heard of any yep. of those no i had not until a few well. weeks months ago um so any they're even using man i've already mentioned brave but they're, they're using um other web browsers new web browsers so for example one called dissenter which if you download it i think it's a browser extension as well as being a browser but if you download it it essentially allows you to comment on any url that you visit and your comments will not be seen by a website administrator. They'll be only seen by other, mem- other individuals who've downloaded the Dissenter browser. So it's kind of a portion of the internet that is kind of um, pasted on to what you see on your screen. But if you don't have Dissenter, you can't see those comments. So it's kind of a workaround for uh, extreme right users to basically talk about the issues of the day without getting censored. For right wing extremists, it's really about operating on the platforms that are go- going to give them more breathing space and the platforms that are not going to crack down upon them every five minutes. And these lesser known platforms basically do that. So a second challenge is, you've got one one challenge is understanding the actual new platform, but a second challenge is actually understanding changes that go on within social media platforms as well. And this is another key area that would really help our customers understand. And, Already mentioned it. Great example is Gab. So Gab recently transitioned um, into an open source decentralized social media platform. Now, what does that mean? That basically means that Gab users can now either join Gab's central server, or they can take take Gab's source code and use that source code to essentially create their own version of Gab, where they control the server. It's not controlled by social media companies controlled by the users now we've actually seen some militant neo-nazi groups vanish from gab during this transition and it's not actually clear yet whether they've been removed or not or whether maybe they've opted to, to refrain from using gab until they can get a better idea about their security on the platform but you know one thing as well is that gab doesn't actually the new gab doesn't feature any messaging tool whereas the old one did you see so again on previous version, you could send private messages. On the current one, you can't. So these are you know, changes within a platform that if you're conducting monitoring on these platforms, it's it's really, really key to know. Mm. And then I'd say the final challenge is, I've already briefly mentioned it, is that the right-wing extremists, activists online, are clearly becoming more savvy online operators. And for example, the other day we saw one user post footage of the New Zealand Christchurch attack uh, on 10 different file hosting platforms. That was actually posted on Gab at the time. And in other instances, we've, uh, we've seen extremists actually creating their own websites, their own discussion forums in order to de- disseminate their ideas. So basically, this is a sign of a community that is basically becoming more resilient online. And they're also becoming more aware of their personal on- online security as well. So, for example, they're, gonna, well, they're getting better at policing their own chat groups. For one, there's one specific chat group run by the Australian branch of a group called Proud Boys, which is a, a white supremacist group. In order to join the group, you've got to post a video pledge. So already from a monitor's point of view, that presents a key challenge because if you want to actually have sight of that group, how do you actually get in if you're supposed to you know, put, um, post a video of yourself? This kind of uh, increased awareness on the part of right-wing extremists is essentially making the job, the monitoring job, harder for individuals and organizations who want to conduct this monitoring
0: it sort of reminds me a little bit when you said they're setting up their own websites yeah of when i first joined Jane's in 2008 and we were doing a lot of monitoring of islamist extremist activity online actually at the time it was sort of before there was that big uptake of social media platforms and the big it was at the right at the beginning of what we've been referring to in some ways as the golden age of open source information at that point Groups were using a lot more websites of their own, so building their own websites rather than relying on those sorts of third-party platforms. So it's interesting that we might see some of that creeping back in as well. Like you say, trying to track all of that activity is a challenge in itself, and it's you know something that we do specialise in and we, we are doing a lot of work in. So it's it's really interesting to hear about how that's going and how that research
1: is developing. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> just a, just a final thought on perhaps where I see this going in the future. So, from around April, we started to see a wider shift of extreme right users shifting to Telegram. Telegram, of course, the platform that has been associated most with Islamist extremists, is now a key platform for the extreme right as well. So, we've seen groups from Eastern Europe, from the UK, Scandinavia, the US, Australia, make this shift in, in the last few weeks and months. It's important to say that the shift didn't start in April. We've seen extreme right users on Telegram way back to, you know, at least 2017. But we did see this wider shift in April. And I think that's most likely due to crackdowns from mainstream media platforms. For example, we had Facebook a few months ago ban white nationalism and white separatism from the platform. So the shift to Telegram is most likely a response to what's been happening on in the mainstream world of social media. And since then, really, Telegram's basically become the centerpiece in social media presence of particularly violent right-wing uh, actors. To give you a flavour of what we're seeing on the platform, specific channels dedicated to the hatred of law enforcement, specific channels dedicated to weapons manuals, threats being made against certain groups, this type of thing. And of course, from a right-wing extremist perspective, it's in many ways the perfect platform because they're operating quite freely. There doesn't seem to be appear to be any, any form of crackdown going on, on that platform. So this is really a key platform going forward. And it's interesting to see the, the techniques used by some of these groups in how they use Telegram. For example, some right-wing groups may have a, a website, a public-facing website, in which they portray a certain image to the world. But they also have a Telegram account. And on that Telegram account, the content suddenly becomes a lot more aggressive, a lot more violent. And not the type of content you'd see on their front-facing website. So, for example, you'd have threats against Jews, threats against Muslims and things like that. So, yeah, a key platform to watch and not just in terms of Telegram itself, but in terms of how Telegram is being used by the extreme right to link out to other platforms like the Gabs of this world, the 4chans and the 8chans. So definitely one to watch going forward.
0: Um, I found that fascinating, to be honest, and it's a topic that I'm sure between you and I, we could talk about all day. Mm-hmm. I'm conscious, though, that we don't want to break the world record for the longest podcast ever. Not on our first go, at least. Maybe <laughs> maybe later on, one of our future episodes. Um, but that's really interesting. So I think that's be, that'll be a topic I'm sure we'll be returning to again in future because it seems like there's a lot of changes occurring there. Mm-hmm. To sort of then wrap up, really, and bring the bring the podcast to a bit of a close... I just want to sort of go back over some of the things that we've we've covered. And we've talked about the current sort of challenges in open source intelligence and how we're seeing some information disappearing from social media and where we're seeing also some groups and individuals becoming more security conscious and they're shifting to other platforms, as Mark's described in some of his research on right-wing extremist groups. And we've talked a little bit about how that's going to impact on OSINT practitioners, OSINT teams, units, et cetera. And how they're going to have to think more carefully about how they plan out their information searching and also thinking more about an analyzing information because open source intelligence really needs to break out of being just a collection discipline and start to get on top of how to analyze activity that we're finding online. And also maybe thinking about how open source information shifts more towards online human intelligence, which I think may be more important and more significant as some of this activity, especially the stuff Mark's been describing on extremist groups, etc., moves to more closed platforms where you need to get access to it or go beyond access controls or be inv- invited into those groups or messages. In terms of our next podcast, it will be in a month's time when we'll be again talking about latest developments in open source intelligence and will again give some insight into some of the research that we've been doing. If you want to find out more information about us, the Jane's Intelligence Unit provides RFI service responses, uh, OSINT training, primers as Mark's described in this uh, podcast. You can find out more information about us online, contact one of your Jane's representatives if you have one, or come to our website, janes.com slash OSINT training to find out more about the training specifically, but more about our team as well. And we'll be happy to respond to any queries or uh, requests that you might have for us. Otherwise, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast and you found it useful and illuminating. I certainly have. I've learned stuff today. So thanks very much for listening. And we hope to welcome you to our next podcast.